Hi, and welcome to another episode of Economist Corner, a CETA podcast where leading economists talk to us about their views and insights on the most important economic and policy issues of the moment. I'm Melinda Salento, Chief Executive of CETA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, and thanks for listening. Before we jump into today's conversation, I'd like you to take a few seconds to rate and subscribe to our podcasts. Subscribing means that you get new episodes as soon as they go live, and rating our show helps others find it too. So thanks for that. Now into today's show. I'm joined by Deloitte partner Nikki Hutley, HSBC's Chief Economist Paul Bloxham, and EY Chief Economist Joe Masters for the second in our series of conversations around the federal budget. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has handed down a big spending budget to get us out of this recession. And on the face of it, it seems to have something for almost everyone. Taxpayers get a big tax cut and business is a big winner with wage subsidies, R&D support and investment incentives. But there are some significant blind spots here that suggest it might not be enough to reignite the growth that we need for a sustainable long-term recovery. Nikki, Paul and Joe, uh, there were really big expectations around the budget uh, going in. Um, in the end, I think we were probably thinking there might be some more things in the budget, but in the end, very few surprises and lots of stuff uh, pre-announced. Um, Nikki, to you first, is it, a, is it a budget that delivered for you or were there um, any surprises in it on, on the night? No, I think it was like watching New, uh, New Year's Eve fireworks. You know, there was sparkling lights everywhere and there's so much detail in there. There's lots of very small things all over the way as well as centrepiece things, but nothing that surprised and probably more critically, nothing that was really visionary that says we're going to reset the economic landscape and the policy landscape. And I guess that's what I would have hoped for something in, in that space. Yes, they've thrown the kitchen sink in, in business incentives and in, in tax cuts. But all of those, of course, hinge on, you know, the confidence factor. So there's, there's a lot of risk. Uh, and there's nothing that said, this is, a, this is an Australia that's going to look so different in four years' time. We're ready for the future. We're, we're, we're getting that reform agenda happening and, and preparing for a different kind of Australia. They missed an opportunity, I think. Yeah, I think it was a bit of my sense too. I, I listened to the Treasurer's um, speech and at one point I, I sort of felt like he was, I, I said to someone, he, it's like the $2 billion man. <laughs> it was, you know, $2 billion for this and, and it just happened to be the sequence of things that he announced, but it was $2 billion here, $2 billion there, $2 billion somewhere else and it, it did seem a little bit bitty. Paul, what about you? Hits and misses? Uh, look, I, I think there weren't a lot of surprises because, as we say, there's a, there was a lot already pre-announced. What, what we did get on the night, um, a bit more clarity around, was the set of forecasts that the, the government's working with. And there I felt a little bit like they're just a potentially a little bit too optimistic given the assumptions that they've got underpinning those forecasts. And one particular one struck me, and that is there isn't much of a plan, or I couldn't find a plan at least, about when and how we're going to reopen the borders to people movement and what the plan is for restarting strong migration and students coming and tourists and, and, and so on. 
and that's been such a fundamental underpinning support for growth in Australia in recent years. So if you look at the numbers, they've got in mind population growth slows this financial year to 0.2%, and next year, next financial year, it rises to 0.4%, and that's because migration is really just almost switched off in, in, in terms of these budget forecasts. But at the same time, they've got in mind that, you know, obviously a very strong bounce back in growth into next financial year is factored into their forecast, four and three quarter percent. So um, while the policy announcements weren't um, a big surprise, because as you say, a lot of them were already out there and we were already discussing them, um, I think some of the things that underpin those forecasts were, were, were a bit surprising. And as I say, one of the ones that was really felt like it was almost missing for me is if you want businesses to be confident about investing and hiring and then households confident about spending, um, probably it would help if there's more of a sort of guide, a, a guide in terms of what's going to happen with reopening borders because without the population growth that's going to slow down demand for retail goods and services and housing and infrastructure and I think that's the bit I think you know as a general point there's a lot of demand side measures in this in, in this budget not a lot of focus on the supply side but in particular I think this aspect of it the the, the, the border um, cross-border movements and, and a lack of clarity there I think that's going to be something that really makes the the, num the, the growth numbers look a little bit optimistic. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, that we the the treasurer earlier in the week had been talking about the population numbers, so we sort of um, had a sense of them already, and and I'd picked up on them a couple of weeks ago, quite frankly, when you you looked at what's happening. But gee, the budget. Uh, made those numbers look pretty stark. I mean, the the slowest population growth in over 100 years. And like it or not, population growth has been a really enormous driver of economic growth, as, as we know, right? And so the fact of the matter is that it's productivity that is absolutely has to be doing the heavy lifting from now on. Potential growth, they flag falling below 2% in the near term. I mean, these are staggering numbers and they're staggering numbers, I think, to just sit in a budget without a response to them, essentially. Um, there's, there's nothing there, I think, that sort of, that points to, here is the, the future long-term growth story. Um, and I, I, I think there was a missed opportunity there too. And I think, interestingly, given the fact the population growth is slowing so much, you've got the big physical built infrastructure agenda, but completely missing is a narrative, I believe, around the social infrastructure story, which would have been, I think, so much more important to, to building growth. Um, Joe, let me let me talk to you about how you see the, um, the outlook there. I mean, it looks very V-shaped, as Paul was saying. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? Are you, you know, are you confident about what's been laid out or what do you see as the big risks? So we describe this as an extraordinary budget in terms of the numbers, but not a very inspiring numbers um, budget. And, you know, as everyone just mentioned, the, the lack of supply side reform, the lack of a vision to improve productivity is missing. It's undeniably missing. And that is a key part of getting businesses out there investing and hiring and households out there spending. Uh, we almost need an environment where there's enough confidence to jump off the cliff and for both of those big sectors of the private economy to get out there and spend. So that's the biggest risk. The risk is that that confidence isn't strong enough, that we don't see these um, demand-driven policies taken up as much as the budget is expecting. And I think there's also a risk that, I don't know if the moment has passed for reform, but we have missed one moment. And I think it does now really raise the pressure on the May budget to be a bolder, more reform budget. And let's not forget, forget that's likely to be a few months ahead of an election. 
So there's lots of risks out there. And look, there's lots of risks in the economic forecast. Forecasting at the moment is incredibly difficult. So I think everyone can, you know, pick and choose the bits that they thought looked okay and forecast that they thought looked more risky. In terms of that, for me, I think this is a government that has shown it is willing to stay quite agile to respond to developments from the health perspective as they come along. And I suspect we might see a little bit of that over the next um, year or so. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really interesting observation too around the balancing act in all of this. And, you know, one of the things that um, I guess I sort of focused on or was alert to is, is just you can look at the assumptions, particularly around un unemployment, and go, well, that looks ambitious. But, uh, you know, in, in a prior life, I worked in Treasury. Um, I actually worked in Treasury when uh, Paul Keating was doing the whole One Nation jobs recovery after the last recession, right? And and I have to say, one of the challenges when you're in Treasury forecasting is you must factor in the success of the programs that the government's announcing. So those assumptions assume that all these programs work and all of those jobs that the Treasurer was talking about last night actually get created and they get created in the way that the, the budget's assuming. And so there's a nice little virtuous circle going on here. Um, and if that doesn't play out, then it's going to work the other way. And I think the government's going to have to be agile then because otherwise um, a lot of the stimulus, I, I think, is going to amount, amount to a lot less than they're hoping for. Um, and the big numbers that they've got there, Melinda, they, they're talking about, you know, 450,000 jobs here and 50,000 here and 15,000 there. Some of those jobs will overlap. So some of the jobs associated with infrastructure will also be the ones that, that are related to the to the, the, the job wage subsidies, whether it's the, the $200 a week or it's the, the, the traineeships. Um, you know, there, there will be some interlapping. These were modelled as discrete items. You know, a million jobs over four years in normal circumstances is not that hard necessarily but you know there's so many ifs as you you say and i think paul's right you know what's to say that businesses are, are, are going to do this you know it's yeah you're right the circularity of this it's, it's we're pinning a lot of hope and I think too, you you know, it is about filling a gap, right? Isn't it? Like right before us, because even the investment um, incentives, you know, that that's a big bring forward. But what what comes what comes after it? So, Paul, let, let me come back to you. I mean, um, a lot of household friendly measures, um, some big tax cuts, uh, some investment incentives. Do, do you think this is going to do the trick in terms of exciting business investment? Oh, look, I think that there are the measures that are being delivered are, are really quite substantial in their size, um, and it seems likely that they're going to provide support. Um, but I think what, what, what the, the challenge for businesses is, although they're going to have a lot of financial incentives to invest and to hire, and they're, they're all very clear in the budget. Um, when they're thinking about their business plans and why it is they're investing and hiring. Um, they probably just need more certainty about what the future pathway is going to look like. Which parts of the economy are going to be able to reopen? When are the state borders going to be reopening? Is that something that they can just assume is going to happen? What's going to happen to the international borders? What's going to happen to population growth? You think about business, the business models we're thinking about, you know, for, for, for retailers or, or in the consumption side, they're looking at how much demand there's going to be. Well, that, that relies on how many households there are. If you're looking at the housing market, um, I mean, we can prime the housing market with spending measures, um, which is what you know part of what the part of the, a part of the budget and, and, and low interest rates. But we've got to keep in mind we need some tenants and we need some households to be formed to be the actual tangible sources of demand for this. And again, that relies a bit on 
what happens with the migration story and population growth. And likewise, you can build infrastructure, but you're going to need people to want to use it and so on. So I think um, it, it's that element of sort of giving a bit more of a clearer plan about how we're going to track this reopening pathway it just doesn't feel like it's there, even though there's all these um, spending, all these spending measures on on the demand side, and, and and so it's not that I don't think the spending measures or the demand side measures are an important part of it. I just feel like it's it might not just might not be enough in and of itself to get yeah. people to feel confident to feel like they can make those those plans. It seems amazing to be saying that, given this the size of. Um... Uh, the deficit, but you know, so much of that, of course, tied to the tax cuts. One of the things that you, know, you Paul, you're talking about the reopening and the strategy for reopening. I think one of the things that I also found interesting, and and I, I know there's huge uncertainty about this, but um, and and. Treasury and the budget had to make an assumption, but they've assumed that um, we'll have a vaccine widely distributed by the end of next year around the country. Um, the interesting thing for me is that uh, that everyone's talking about when will the vaccine get here, but actually no vaccine is 100% effective. So we are going to have to be living with COVID in the community for some time yet, and particularly if we're opening um, not just our internal borders, but um, international borders, right? So I'm just interested in, um, in how you think about that assumption. And Nikki, I'll flip to you. I mean, you know, it's, it seems like a missing piece in this, and it, it follows from what Paul was saying, that um, we, we're not really talking about that or how we're going to deal with it. And actually, there was, it didn't seem to be any focus on that or any additional investment in the health side of things around how we're going to um, you know, track and, and trace and all this sort of stuff and, and manage this. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a little bit in there, but it's mainly focused on, on the almost 2 billion around getting 84 million vaccines into the country. Now, the, the sort of vaccine and, and health specialists that, that I talk to very much suggest that, um, you know, the, the timelines in the budget for Australia by having it community-wide by the end of next year are feasible. Um, but, you know, that means, but it's based on, yes, we do find something that's effective. But, but they seem to be quite um, opti optimistic um, and pretty well everybody in that public health space that I've talked to seems to think that that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, so I'm not so worried. There's some vague uh, discussion in the documents around what's happening in the global economy, which is obviously going to take much longer. Uh, and that is really uncertain. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of uncertainty, but they, they are reasonable assumptions. But even if you look at the scenario analysis at the end, it does actually have the Sorry. If you look at the scenario analysis at the end, you've got the potential for, um, you know, for the upside and downside, which is all around what happens if this goes awry. Uh, and it's quite a big hit to, to GDP if, if we don't get this right or if we get, you know, further widespread outbreaks. So they are thinking about it. Um, it is possible. And I do think that there's a certain need to be optimistic without being terribly unrealistic because if we can't find some ways to build optimism and confidence the whole of the centerpiece of this budget falls apart because no one will invest if they don't think that we're heading towards something that is tangible 
you know, within a reasonable time frame, I think. Yeah, and I think I absolutely agree with that. And and I've had lots of conversations with epidemiologists and, and there is a quite a degree of optimism and confidence about it. I think the thing that was missing for me is the sense that it, it just seems like we're sort of in this mentality of it's all or nothing. We have a vaccine and we don't have a vaccine. And in fact, it, the reality is going to be grey. And that was my point about there is no vaccine that's even going to be 100% effective. In the US, they're talking about supporting um, the, the rollout of vaccines that are far less effective than you would normally expect or accept if you're um, uh, the organisation that approves those types of things. So it just seems that, you know, building uh, building confidence around the fact that we can actually manage this, that we're making further investments to ensure that we can manage it, keep people safe and all the rest of it, actually is part and parcel of that. And, and again, I thought, you know, I don't want to sound nitpicky, but I sort of felt like that was something that was a bit missing too. If, you, if you're throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this to try to build confidence, there just seemed to be a few things that, um, that were missing in action. Um, I'm going to change tack if I can, and sorry for being a bit, I'm a bit bitsy like the budget perhaps, but um, Joe, let me, let me bring you into this. Uh, when I was interviewing the the Prime Minister at our State of the Nation conference earlier this year, I talked to him about the pink recession. You know, this is the, the phrase that people are using to describe the, the really significant hit on female employment that we've seen, not surprisingly because services are so impacted. I just thought there was very little in the budget on this. And was that a surprise to you? Do you share that view? I absolutely share that view. We know that young Australians and females have been disproportionately hit by this crisis on a number of metrics, most obviously the labour market, and that flows through to all sorts of things, um, including superannuation balances at retirement, for example. Um, we had heard ahead of the budget that there would be some measures around female employment and for the young. We got a very clear support package for young Australians with that wage subsidy directed at those under the age of 35, but no direct measures for females who have lost their job or who have left the workforce, let alone those that are underemployed. And even the refreshed women's economic security statement provided just $240.4 million over five years. Now, as you said right at the start, there was a whole heap of measures that were $2 billion here, $2 billion there, $2 billion for the next one. Let me repeat, $240 million over five years. I think that's pretty disappointing. You know, um, here's a little thing that, that snuck by a lot of people too. And uh, because of my involvement with Reconciliation Australia, maybe I was uh, um, paying attention to it in a way that I shouldn't expect others to. But the Treasurer in his speech announced 2,000 Indigenous um, uh, scholarships um, through the Clontarf organisation. Um, Clontarf is a, is a sporting organisation that provides support for um, male Indigenous participants. It's not a female program either. So there's a few sort of misses there as well. And again, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm whinging too much, but when you join the dots on that one, um, it really feels like um, it wasn't focused on in the way that um, so many of us um, had hoped for. And you know, I think there was a sense that maybe we might finally see something on childcare. Uh, but but again, a, a big a big zero. <laughs> yeah, that I think that's really interesting. I think that's really interesting, Melinda, actually, um, just in the post-budget things I've done since late last night, twice the issue, the question has come up in with migration numbers so low and falling, you know, should we have policies um, that ask families to have more children? And I keep coming back to, to your point, um, lack of access and 
lack of affordable childcare is a major inhibitor to female participation in the workforce. And look, can I tell you, that is proven fact, because if you go and have a look at the ABS website, um, their surveys actually show that about as clearly as you could um, ever expect. <laughs> um, Nikki, you were going to jump in on that? Yeah, I'm saying they, they missed a huge opportunity there, you know, to have a centrepiece platform. This has been called for, it's been modelled to death about the benefits of the participation and to do it now off the back of, you know, where you need to attract more women and to get that participation up. Because if you think about our three P's model of, 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 of growth, we haven't got the population. Productivity, well, we might get some of that, but mainly on the basis of, of, of job shedding. So... We really need to get that participation up if we are going to try and, and, and achieve the growth rates, you know, that, that they're forecasting that we're going to get. So um, I'm just thinking, you know, women consistently get uh, forgotten. We got rid of the women's uh, budget paper. You know, I thought there was going to be some significant initiative, and it turns out it's, you know, a few few rehashed policies. It's, it's just really disappointing. Um, and as I heard somebody suggest this morning, it's probably because the majority of decision makers um, all have, you know, the XY chromosomes, unfortunately, and perhaps don't think through the double X lens. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Paul. We've got you. We've got you on the outer. I'm going to bring you back into the inner. Um, you know, you in your opening comments, you jumped straight on this issue of population. Um, we've got a participation rate um, challenge here as well, I think. But you talked about, you know, um, the absence of long-term reforms. What what would you be looking for in that space? Well, I think that participation is very much linked to the childcare issue. I, I didn't jump in then, but I, I, I did. I do want to definitely be included in this discussion. I think that you know there is a there is a, a, a there really is a dearth of of of, uh, of uh, clarity on on childcare and moving forward on on childcare arrangements. And that's just one of the fundamental ways that you're going to be able to support uh, a, a participation in the labour market. Um, you know, we we go back to the three P's. How do we get the economy to grow? Population participation and productivity so participation that's one we you know we need to focus on um, and then there's productivity and and when we're thinking about productivity well what are the elements that we need we part of it is uh, a more broad-based tax reform I, I fear and we talked about this in the call before um, the the event that the, the the pulling forward of the personal income tax cuts is going to be treated as though it's uh, it sort of replaces any sort of look at, at a broader based tax reform and I suspect that that might end up being the case. Um, so I worry that that's, that's not something we've picked up on. Um, there really wasn't anything in the competition policy or the in industrial relations space that really um, was, was was a part of this a part of this story. And we know we, we you know we we need to look at that. We've, we've had a competition policy review a few years back by Ian Harper, and a lot of the elements there are, are, are for anyone to read. But they're not they're not something that were were part of this. It really wasn't a reformist budget. And I guess one of the challenges is. I hope that this is just one. This is a this is the plan to get the economy to recover. It's the next stage. The initial stage was dealing with the emergency. This stage is about getting the economy to pick up, and then in in some ways the final stage needs to be to get us the economy to be more productive. And I guess the, you know the question is, um, will there be the political will to achieve more, a more reformist budget? By the time we get to say the May budget next year, when we're leading up into an election, um, and and that's the challenge. Did they? Is, is is it that this this budget missed an opportunity to do broader-based reform that also 
see people at productivity as well as get the economy um, on that recovery path. Yeah, it feels very much like this was, um, you know, it's, it's funny, if we go back to even a couple of months ago, um, or less, the whole conversation really was around the fiscal cliff, right? Um, and people were really talking about how we were going to transition um, from the JobKeeper payments and all these types of things. There's still a big question there too, as businesses transition from that um, and the, you know, the rent relief and, and whatever else. But it seems like, so the government's very focused on jobs. They've introduced um, the, the wage subsidy scheme, the JobMaker scheme. Um, a lot was made of that. Uh, if you look at the scale of money that's gone into JobKeeper, which of course is flowing for a few more months yet, um, you know, that's what, $100 billion. I think the budget's $4 billion for JobMaker. That, that seems like a bit of a step down. Um, Nikki, how are you feeling about that in the context of, you know, is it enough? Um, is $200 a week um, for 20 hours of work, is that really going to encourage people to take on uh, unemployed workers and particularly anyone who's been unemployed for more than three months? Yeah, I, I think this is a really tricky one to, to be honest. You know, a wage subsidy of, of, of 50% um, is, is something we, we see as, as being quite workable, even if it's not enduring. But the sort of $200 and $100 you know, targeted amounts, this, if you think the minimum wage is 750 so, I mean, all right, we're talking only minimum 20 hours, so that might be half of that. And maybe that's enough if, if the full 200 and that's something I'm not entirely clear on, does the full 200 apply to those 20 hours? If so, it might be an incentive. But, you know, it comes back, it's the same question we keep asking ourselves, and it is how, you know, what do businesses see as, as their future? I mean, I think there will be businesses that have let people go as opposed to having them on JobKeeper or, or businesses that will lose people after JobKeeper goes that may subsequently then, when things look a bit better, because this does go on until 2022, may be encouraged by this as things happen. But, you know, there's there, it's all about the timing. And it seems to me we've come off, as you say, that fiscal cliff, you know, first in December with JobSeeker and, and then in March with Job keeper and a lot of this even even the the, the getting keeping uh, the lamington the low offset for for one more year great initiative but how is it you can pay 250 out to pensioners whose income hasn't changed by the way and who don't spend a lot but you can't do the same for households you're waiting for making them wait till at least july next year for that that offset you know the logic of that and the timing around when all of these things will kick in i think we're in for a very difficult 12 months still and there's a lot of hope that we need to have based around basically vaccines and keeping health you know, conditions under control um you know and we need everything to go right for the following year um to to come out yeah yeah yeah, I think it's. Um, it was interesting when I had a look at the numbers um, of the four billion for the job maker. Um, Two point nine of that is actually next year. Uh, now that's not surprising if JobKeeper goes through to March and is a couple of months and there'll be slow take up. But you know, for those of us who are familiar with labour market dynamics and how um, the weight of unemployment influences your job prospects, if you lose your job in March and you you know and you're six months unemployed, that's already starting to really reduce the, your prospects of being employed uh, with with or without a wage subsidy. Um, Joe, are you more or less optimistic? Do you, are you kind of sharing the vibe here on this or how are you seeing the job maker? And also maybe let's just jump into job seeker as well, given that if you want to talk for bang for buck and something that's been modeled to death, <laughs> what, what, what's your take on all that? 
Yeah, look, I, I agree with Nikki. Um, we had this household income cliff coming. These measures ease it. They probably don't ease it enough to ensure or guarantee a smooth transition off that, the sort of response measures into the more recovery measures. I actually think one of the interesting things is um, that if you look at the $90 billion worth of new measures announced since July, less than 25% of that is direct stimulus over the next two years. And yet we know that that direct government spending actually does have quite a big employment multiplier. It does drive the unemployment rate lower. So, so there is a real expectation that households and the private sector businesses will kind of pick up the baton of growth, that they will take the leap of faith and that they will invest spend and, and hire. So, um, you know, I, I think there are absolutely risks and I agree with Nikki that I think the economy is in for a pretty tough um, 12 months on the way ahead. Um, I mean, in some sense, we've got to continue to respond and we do need policies to recover. I still just think that the lack of reform in this budget is going to play out in the recovery, pace of recovery, uh, because I just think that that's such a big part of underpinning confidence, giving people a framework and a narrative to run with. So let's turn to that bigger question and let's turn to May and, and, and Paul's already sort of touched on this a little bit around the long-term growth agenda. But I mean, before we get to May, the Treasurer already flagged a couple of other things we might look forward to that are significant. Um, one is the uh, the government's response to the Productivity Commission's uh, review of mental health. Um, that's going to come with a price tag, no doubt about it. Some measures uh, spoken to last night and introduced last night as sort of interim steps, if you like, uh, particularly targeting the mental health of young people. Um, but also the Treasurer flagged, and I think quite significantly, that there's a serious response coming to the Royal Commission into aged care. Um, now, that report comes out in February. That positions itself, obviously, for a May budget um, as, a, as a response, if you like. Um, so there's a couple of things we might hear on the way through. Uh, so two questions. Firstly, do we think that we will see the government respond between now and May um, if, it, if it feels the need to tweak some of these measures that they're introducing, or is it just now wait and see till May? And then what are you expecting uh, to see in May? And I'll start with you, Paul, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So I, I think they have got the opportunity to tweak. Uh, you know, one, one thing that we, we need to keep in mind here is the RBA, the Reserve Bank, is, is pretty much at its limits on monetary policy. And, in, in you know, over the past three decades, the way that we've managed the cycle is we've expected the RBA to be the one loosening conditions in order to get the labour market to keep improving and the unemployment rate to fall. Well, now it really is that the game is mostly fiscal. And so... If the unemployment rate isn't trending lower, if they're not getting jobs growth, if it isn't doing what they what the government needs it to do, then you'd, I'd expect to see more fiscal support delivered. I think you know fiscal policy now plays the incremental role of managing the cycle as well as getting as as well as uh, you know running supporting the the broader recovery. So I, that's so that's what I would expect to see. Um, as far as the the May budget's concerned. Um, if the economy is on a reasonable path by then, um, and, and I, I mean, I think the challenge for them, I, I'm hoping that it's going to be, a, you know, a more reform-oriented budget, one that focuses on elements that might um, look, lift productivity. But the challenge is, of course, it's also likely to be a pre-election, a pre-election budget. So, uh, I, one of the risks that I can foresee 
is, you know, we, we do get, if, if things are on an improving path, but of course, there are going to be some winners and some losers. There are going to be some sectors that really struggle and others that do better. And the, the, as we get towards what might very well be an, an election budget is likely to be, um, that then policy gets designed around supporting the, the various interest groups um, that, that, that aren't doing so well. And, and it's also, it is, you, we've got to keep in mind that, you know, COVID has led to some permanent changes in the economy. There are some businesses that just aren't going to make it. There are others that are going to do well, but there are some that aren't. And, and we need that adjustment to happen as well. Otherwise, we lose the dynamism. So I, I, I worry about that aspect too, that we get to the May budget and we get, and we get a lot more spending tar targeted for particular interests, again, with a sort of the political intent, the, the, the political outcomes in mind rather than the broader national economic interests. Yeah, I think um, that's probably a risk that's shared. But Nikki, how about your perspectives on this? Oh, look, definitely. I mean, they have been quite open and said on things like um, the, the job seeker rate, you know, that, that they will wait and see what the economic climate is like uh, and, and make a decision later this this year. And I think there is recognition that pulling back the, the supplement completely would, would not be a sensible thing to do in the current um, economic climate. You know, the other thing is we know there are lots of zombie firms out there, but we also know the banks are starting to look at loans out there. So it's not just about you know job keeper um there, there, there is more pain to come beforehand so they will need to be absolutely flexible i do think though once we hit 2021 you know the election cycle i totally agree will, will start to, to influence i think having not had a centerpiece in in last night's budget we, I, I don't really expect us to see anything meaningful. There, there will be bits and bobs along the way, and you know, obviously, mental health and aged care is incredibly important. And it's finally just awesomely good to see more money going going in those those areas. But when we talk about the shifts in in productivity. You know what's happened on the on those IR conversations. It's just kind of fizzled fizzled away. Um, you know there were a couple of intimations in in the budget around technology and the digital economy, but again nothing that says you know let's build a, 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 a technology enabled economy of the future. And these are the steps that are that are going to to go out there. There are minds sharper than mine that, that you know have been coming up with these sorts of suggestions. And gosh, haven't we had a policy you know a shopping list of spending spree of reforms suggested from so many people for so long. So to not use this you know once in a generation, once in a century opportunity to to grab those reforms and go let's be bold. Yeah, it's it's kind of you just come away feeling well. Yeah, they did. They've done, announced a lot of things and they're spending a heck of a lot of money. But gee, what's going to change? Yeah, I think it's. Um you know, I too was hoping for something um, more strategic and significant, particularly on the on the digital side. And you know, the the narrative that we've heard so much out of COVID is that we've all surprised ourselves on how quickly we've embraced digitisation. That includes really significant things like telehealth. I mean, here was an opportunity for the government to really back that to the hilt, um, to deliver better services um, and to really invest in that. Um, I think it feels like the government sort of took placed a few bets, but all subscale. Um, and, you know, if it just feels like if, if you're expecting households to spend, if you're expecting businesses to take risks and invest, this was a time for the government to maybe take a few more risks, if you like. Um, and so we didn't really see that. Um, Joe, I guess the final word for you in terms of what we might expect between now and May and in the May budget. 
So look, I tend to agree. Between now and May, I would expect the government to stay agile. There's still a lot of moving parts on the health front, as we've discussed, vaccinations, localised lockdowns, um, the global economy. And there's also a very long history of um, not forecasting GDP, uh, nominal GDP very well and, and having some misses around um, receipts and expenditure as well. So, you know, I think staying agile and there's absolutely the prospect of um, some announcements between now and now and um, May. In terms of what we see in May, um, look, again, I, I would love to see more reform. We all know what we're talking about, tax, IR, skills, red tape. Will they be bold enough? I, I don't know. Um, it's an election budget, as we've discussed. It doesn't feel like reform is the centrepiece. It doesn't feel like we're, you know, to coin the phrase, using the burning platform that COVID has delivered. I do think that if the demand-driven policies are not working fast enough, that we will need to see more direct spending. And, you know, that is infrastructure um, to some extent, but not just transport, you know, social, health, green infrastructure, digital infrastructure. That conversation has to be much broader. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, Nikki, Paul and Joe, um, you're very busy people uh, in the post-budget world. Um, thank you so much for giving CETA a little bit of, of your time and, uh, and a lot of your insights. Um, so thank you, Deloitte partner, Nikki Hutley, HSBC's Chief Economist, Paul Bloxham and EY Chief Economist, Joe Masters. Uh, go well and uh, hopefully you get a break in the next couple of days. Thanks. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.